So this is Katie Cast, the podcast for debate, discussion and analysis of issues related to geriatric and general medicine, brought to you by the Association for Elderly Medicine Education. My name is Peter Brock and I'm joined by my fellow geriatric registrars, Dr. Mark Garside. Hello. Dr. James Fisher. Hi. And uh, new to the Katie Cast arena is consultant geriatrician, Dr. Kelly Hunt. Hello. So today's podcast is entitled Fear, Loathing and the MedReg. And it was worn out of work done by Amy at the 2013 Geriatrics Virginia Conference. Um, the delegates ahead of the conference were asked what factors put them off becoming a geriatrician. And the number one reason that they cited was that they were worried about being a medical registrar. So today, uh, thanks to people through our website, through Twitter and through people we've talked to at the hospital, we've tried to gather um, some of people's fears about being the medical registrar. And we have assembled this crack team of uh, registrars and consultants to try and uh, address those fears, both with some practical tips and hopefully some calming words. To begin with, uh, we're going to try and warm everyone up with our icebreaker question and give you all a chance to get to know our uh, panel a little bit more. So um, the question today is, obviously, you've all picked a fine career in becoming geriatricians. Um, but I imagine, probably apart from James, you weren't born wanting to be a geriatrician. Um, so when you were younger, what did you really want to be? And uh, as I brought him up, I'll start with James. Um, thanks, Pete. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't really want to be a doctor. I had no idea I wanted to be a doctor. What I wanted to be was a train driver, specifically one who worked in the fictional world of Thomas the Tank Engine. I think it was possibly because of maybe Ringo Starr's dulcet tones that maybe drew me to it, as someone obviously hailing from Liverpool. But maybe it was just James the Red Engine, my favourite colour in my name. Oh, that's really sweet. I think you just wanted to be a train, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark, what about you? Well, I was thinking about this, and I reckon that uh, as I've grown up, my intended career is dependent on what I used to watch on TV. So when I, the first thing that I can remember wanting to be when I grew up, um, it was a Thundercat. <laughs> but uh, then I realised that that was, that was just silly so then I wanted to be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle um, and then when I became a teenager I was really into the X-Files so I thought I wanted to be a forensic pathologist um, to the extent that uh, about GCSE level I went to uh, a conference that I, I remember going to a conference in Sheffield about uh, forensics Forensics um, for juniors was it? <laughs> And uh, I realised that actually it was less uh, about um, finding paranormal activity and everything and more about grim and grisly crimes. And uh, I decided that, <laughs> that, that, that wasn't for me. Uh, and I ended, ended up falling into medicine after that. I'm impressed by how seriously you took it going to a conference <laughs> as a teenager. Yeah. That's quite impressive. Uh, well, a girl I liked at the time wanted to go and I, I thought I'd go with her. Uh, <laughs> smooth. Fair enough. <laughs> Kelly, what about you? Right, well, I'm, I'm not sure mine's really exciting as uh, these guys, um, but um, so I thought quite a lot about this and um, actually I think I wanted to be a farmer. <laughs> so um, I love being outside, so I like working outside. I like the physical nature of the job, farming. Um, I think there's great diversity, so I don't think you really get bored of it. And, um, and then I th- started thinking, so how did I ever decide that I wanted to be a doctor, sort of coming from that? So I thought maybe working a little bit with animals and sort of growing up with lambing and things maybe actually made me interested in a bit more about what goes on with the body and, uh, and understand it a bit more. <laughs> but, yeah, I know. <laughs> Absolutely. But I realised communication was difficult, so I went, I went, I went for people instead. <laughs> nice. Um, I wanted to be Wales Wally. 
Because I thought that was a great job. You could you could travel. You could come to meet a lot of people. And to the point, I'd obviously tell my mum this. So when I was a kid, she took a red jumper and got some emulsion and painted white stripes on it. And then that was my Where's Wally jumper. I went on a stag do last year and uh, the, uh, the stag was dressed as Where's Wally. It was quite good. There you go. Because we walked down the street and everyone was going, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should do that for you from now on. Maybe. Maybe I'll get that jumper back out. Yeah. And the hat. <laughs> yeah. The hat and the glasses as well. So, uh, as I said today, uh, our aim is to try and address some of the, the fears and worries that people have about becoming a medical registrar. And how we're going to do this is, I'm actually, um, I've only been a medical registrar for three weeks at the time of making this. So I would say that my fear is, is at an all-time peak, um, particularly as I'm only a couple of weeks from my first uh, nights on call in the admission unit. Um, so I thought I would be presenting um, the fears to these guys and uh, see how they do in reassuring me that everything's going to be okay. And I will be keeping score to let them know how well they're doing. Um, so the first uh, fear that we got from uh, the people we've been speaking to, and probably the most commonly th- thing I heard from uh, junior doctors, particularly foundation doctors, is the idea of how, when you're the medical registrar, do you manage to manage so many unwell patients at once and and what do you do if you if you have to deal with multiple people who are unwell, particularly if you don't know exactly what's wrong with them? I think junior doctors think, well, I've always got this safety net of being able to ask the med reg. And then suddenly you become that person. You don't have that safety net anymore. And, and how do you get over that? I think that there's there's two different things that you mentioned there in the question. In the, in the question. And one is, how do you actually manage the volume of work? And the other is, how do you deal with things that you are unsure about? The fear of the unknown. In terms of the juggling the volume of work, I think that's to do with transitioning yourself from a more junior role as an SHO to the registrar in that you have to remember that you don't necessarily need to be there doing every little minute thing for the patient yourself. You're part of a team and as a registrar, you're a more senior part of that team. And a lot of the time at the point where you are called, um, a lot of the uh, basic investigations and workup of unwell patients will have been done for you. So the, either you're getting called because it's very quickly apparent that the patient is unwell and people want reassurance that the basic uh, hemodynamic support is being done until the test results can come back and you can work out what's going wrong. Or they want your help in interpreting the test results after they've come back. And you go in there and you offer your opinion. And you'll usually have other team members who can follow through with any outstanding investigations for you. So you go from a a role where you're more engaged with every little thing that goes on with a particular patient to a role where you're taking more of an oversight. And with respect to the, the fear of not knowing what to do, I think that's something that we've all had and that we all still get. But with experience, I think it it's not about necessarily... as the medical registrar needing to know everything about a huge range of subjects within medicine it's about needing to do the basics well and that's what your training's been leading up to and if you can make sure that the patient survives the on-call shift until uh, whichever specialist can be involved to answer any of the tricky questions then you've you've done your job yeah second all of that i am i hear what you're saying about i guess what you're alluding to is delegating tasks so tasks that maybe you won't, don't have time to do and I, to be honest that's something I kind of struggle with a wee bit actually I, I always feel a bit guilty when I sort of say to someone oh, would you mind doing those bloods for me or would you mind you know, doing that gas for me and 
I think that's maybe one thing you, you sort of learn as you, as you get a bit more experience in that it is appropriate to delegate stuff like that because you simply can't do all those things. And I guess what I try and do to make myself feel a bit better about doing that is try and just do some sort of 15, 20 second micro teaching on this is why we're doing the blood test, this is why we're doing the gas, or because otherwise I just feel dreadfully guilty of just saying do this, do that, like, you know, the, the sort of your, your slave. Um, Part of it's a trust issue as well, I think. Mm. You've got to trust other people to do the things that throughout your training you, you're you used to being the one that does them. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you have to um, you have to learn to trust your juniors, actually. And um, I think that happens at every level, really, throughout medicine. But, um, I mean, that takes time because people have to earn your trust, obviously. And so you have to be aware of the people you can trust and those that perhaps are less so basically in terms of uh, what you're doing so you can also in terms of the amount of patients you manage like Mike was saying you'll come along a bit later on and results are there and things you can also manage distantly sometimes as well so if you have got lots of sick patients at once nowadays I think every hospital pretty much has like results available electronically the x-rays are available on, on a pack system so you can offer advice over the phone before you actually get to see that person if you're with somebody else that's perhaps equally as sick um so you do have to be good at prioritising tasks, which by this point in your training, when you're about to move on to reg level, then that should be a skill that you already have. And um, I think if you didn't, it probably would have been picked up before now um, and highlighted in your training record. So I'll be honest as well. I think this might be a bit controversial, but I think sometimes it's actually easier when you're in the med reg. I think back to when I was an F2 in A&E and I look at some people who've come into A&E in terms of patients and they're super sick. And we're expecting the A&E doctors to know the answer straight away with no tests to go on. I think that's really hard. I think it's very easy to turn up as the medreg and be like, oh, this is a clear case of X, Y, Z, when you've got all the investigations in front of you. So actually, a lot of the time, the, the more junior members of the team have done the hard work for you. They've, they've done the hard yards and it, it's sort of turning up and just piecing it together, which, as Kelly sort of said, by that point in your training, you're very familiar with doing that. So it's interesting that you, you brought up trusting your junior members of, of the team because it's it's something that's come up on, on Twitter a little bit when we've been talking about it. I know, um, so thank you very much to Jenny Harrison who's mentioned that trusting members of your team is important, but also sometimes you've seen from your own experience that the advice you've given isn't necessarily what's written down in the notes. So what did you guys use to, to sort of master trusting your, your teams? I think that's quite difficult when you're being called by a lot of different people. I think the team that you work closely with on the admissions unit or on the medical ward, you develop a relationship with and you can work uh, with them, get to know each other's working habits and um, get to know the way people like things done. The slightly harder thing is if you get called from remote parts of the hospital, um, the maternity unit, it's mm-hmm. one that immediately springs to mind, or often the surgical team, and you give advice, you hope that it's taken and occasionally you go and see the patients and you see what's written down and it's not always what you've said. It's difficult. I don't know if there's a way to manage that really apart from to try and have a, an own person, your own personal barometer of uh, risk and trust. And when I first started, I was very paranoid about that sort of stuff mm-hmm. and would go and see in person most if not all of the referrals that I was called about, even if I didn't think that they necessarily needed a medical review. But as you go on and become a bit more experienced, you can ease off on that to an extent and Mm. kind of get a feeling for the ones that maybe you don't need to worry about quite so much. And for those patients, 
it doesn't necessarily matter if you don't think that they're particularly sick if what has been written down in the notes doesn't entirely reflect what you say. Mm. I think one thing I would say, a thing not to do, is a trap that I've maybe fallen into a few times where, where maybe when you're called, you you make a judgment about the person based on their grade. So, for example, you might get rung by a more senior person and you make assumptions that what they're saying is completely correct and that they, of course, they would have thought of X, Y, and Z. There's no point asking them because, of course, they would have because that's so obvious. And I've had a few times where maybe I've done a had a shorter conversation because I've assumed that because they were senior, they would have covered things and then it's transpired that they haven't and things have been missed. So I think just simply assuming that because they're a more senior person, everything will be okay. I think that's a pitfall to, to watch out for. Okay. Um, another one from Jenny actually was that she brought up the idea that, as you just mentioned, actually getting called to the maternity unit or the surgical ward, a, uh, a, a, an area where you might not have any experience in, but you're expected to see their patients and maybe their problems are actually related to, to what they came in with. How have you guys managed to deal with that? So if it's maternity, I think um, you have you have like a limited knowledge, I suppose, of changes to bodies during pregnancy and um, I think if it's uh, so I've been called before for example for somebody who was um, had an unexplained tachycardia and so I started thinking about what problems could happen in terms of um, pregnancy and what um, yeah what heart problems they might have so you know I suppose thinking about arrhythmias thinking about cardiomyopathies and I felt like I couldn't really explain it by anything else that was going on and so I asked for help so I asked a cardiologist to see her and say, does she does she need an echo? You know, is there something I'm missing here? And, you know, that would be my answer to a lot of these questions is ask for help. If you don't know what's going on, ask um, ask somebody else to help you and to to support you in that in that setting. If it's um, but also ask the people on maternity. So ask the obstetricians if this is normal <laughs> mm. um, uh, have they has anybody else had something like this before you know if it's directly related to the pregnancy you're there you can answer sort of the medical stuff but they need to help you with the pregnancy complications really which they probably know much more about than you do yeah. the other thing about the, the the med red role is that it covers a big uh, different variation in terms of experience so people calling the medical registrar and that can be somebody who in theory is just four years out of medical school four years post qualification up to somebody who's 12 years post qualification Mm -hmm. and that doesn't necessarily reflect their ability I guess but in terms of the expectation that people have of you is sometimes I think particularly when you're a newer registrar you feel the weight of that expectation a little bit but I think that's why it's even more important to to do what Kelly said and just acknowledge the the limits of your own ability and knowledge and know when to to ask for help uh, and not to be afraid of doing that just because people are calling you expecting an instant answer. Yeah, I think that's just good good practice, isn't it? To be aware of your gaps in your knowledge and seek advice from others. That's just good practice. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And I don't think there's anything different between the advice that we're giving now, applying to the medical registrar, and the same advice you'd give to an F1 who was just out of medical yeah. school. I mean, it, it's the, the same way of going about things, just at a slightly more senior level. And this maybe touches on something we brought up in the first County cast when we were talking about knowledge, and we were saying that there's this assumption that as you progress through your training, you get to this sort of Zenith-like status where you know everything there is to know. We were saying how that's dangerous, and actually anyone who sort of professes to be like that is probably relying 
Um, and I guess the same applies to the Medreg. There's this assumption that the Medreg is this all-knowing creature who can just solve every problem. And if you subscribe to that and try and hide the fact that you don't, then you actually, you know, you're going to run into problems. So I don't have any problem in admitting my limitations, of which there are many. Uh, so I'd encourage you to to be uh, be honest. Well, I think that I think that actually nicely links into our first question, doesn't it? Which is there's a lot of fear that you're expected to taking this role where you're supposed to be able to deal with absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, but actually admitting some some of the points that you don't know is the safest and probably the best way to, to deal with those problems. Right, a little bit of a change because this is one that I have a particular concern about um, and something that, that Fran Denham on Twitter summed up nice, nicely, which was her fear of the uh, 4am tension pneumothorax. And just to expand on that slightly from my point of view about my concerns about um, being able to do practical procedures that need to be done potentially quickly because they're potentially life-saving procedures. So the two ones that have come to mind when I've been talking to people have been chest strains and uh, pacing, um, something that you might not have, you've, you've done, but you might have a lot of experience by the time you get to medical role. Um, what sort of advice would you give people about, about dealing with those sorts of concerns? Like, sorry. Sorry. Okay, right, okay. So um, we're all too polite. I think, I think, it, I think these things are often your fears are often worse than the reality. So um, uh, tension pneumothorax, they're probably dealt with more in A and E than what we see in medicine, or perhaps on in an ITU setting. So it's probably quite. I don't think I've ever seen one in uh, on a medical ward or in a medical setting, you know, other than sort of an A&E presentation or ITU. So probably unlikely to happen, but obviously I think most people know where to stick a needle if it is a tension pneumothorax, and that actually stabilises the patient till you can get the chest strain in. So if you really don't know how to put the chest strain in, then I think at any time of the day or night, there are people around in the hospital that will be able to help you with that. So... um, I think every hospital now has an ITU and um, their doctors are usually very experienced at chest strain insertion and will be willing to help you, as will the A&E registrar or the A&E doctors that are on site. So I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I think to overcome your fear, though, I think the best thing to do is a skills course and go to a lab and learn how to do one before you actually start the role and um, try and um, spend some time on a respiratory ward and practice them there as well Mm -hmm. um in terms of pacing now i i did a pacing why when i was a house officer (laughs) 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 just a couple of years ago (laughs) and i've never done one since and um then they're not something that we're really expected to do like as uh, um, medical registrars nowadays and i think that actually if somebody desperately needs pacing you use an external pacer which is pretty easy actually it's just a case of um, putting the pads on and getting to the right sort of threshold to pace or on a defib machine yeah. so um I, I don't think you necessarily need to worry about that that much no, I, i'd recommend maybe i guess everyone will have done an als probably around about f2 and i can't remember exactly how many years it lasts i think it's four years, it's four years. so mm-hmm. most people by the time they're popping into med regland a due re- refresh of their ALS and I think once you've done that the pacing you know, it's actually pretty easy really the hardest thing is knowing where the pacing defib is um, so I'd, I'd recommend sort of doing your ALS early on in terms of chest strains I'd, I'd agree with everything Kelly has said and I mean there's an argument that no one should ever be doing a procedure on a real person for the first time and it should all be skills lab but, but obviously that's sort of variably available in places I mean from a personal point of view I as medics we're, you know, we're all terrified of failure 
we're all very you know we're all very scared of showing that we can't do something and I just think an example when I was a as a, as a medical student I um I only did one blood gas when I was a medical student and it was on a child. It was just a nightmare. And it was horrific. You know, the, the mum was bawling, the child was bawling. It was just traumatic for all concerned, me included. And I got it, but I thought, well, I've done that. I'm never going to do that ever again. And I just <laughs> shied away from it. And I, I think when I then started and I had free blood gases to do in the space of 10 minutes on the respiratory ward, I was thinking, oh, no, why did I shy away from it? And, and my, my advice would be, yeah, it's okay to be afraid of something, but don't sort of bury your head in the sand and be afraid of it because it's much better to be proactive, like Kelly said, and do it in the light of day, do it on a model, as opposed to being there at four going, oh, I really wish I'd been on that course now. So be proactive. Yeah, because I think uh, Kelly's point about if you actually think about the number of people in that hospital at the same time who can help you out with that procedure, who, who if you do need, if you are struggling, mm-hmm. um, you can get help from. Is that, is, it will be, there will be more than one person in every hospital who can help you out. I think the way to pitch it, because just, just to, uh, before our anaesthetic colleagues get upset, I think the way to pitch it is, hi, someone needs a chest drain desperately, I can't do it please would you come and supervise me as opposed to hi there's a chest drain here for you to do which I'm sure, I'm sure none of our listeners would do but I think as we said before it's a team game really isn't it and, yeah. and sort of showing willing I think most people are very reasonable and would be more than happy to do that um, I've always found please help me works <laughs> <laughs> when in doubt it's a good game yeah. to isn't it <laughs> yes indeed absolutely brilliant okay um, so one I think it was an F1 I was uh, speaking to said to me uh, why would I want to be the med reg? I'll have no life. I'll be on endless nights. I'll be have terrible inflexible rotors, and it's all that stress. So, really, that's obviously a fear about the impact that that the job has on on your lifestyle. Um, do you think that's true, or do you think that's the case for any middle grade job? Really, I think it's it's possibly the case in any field that you go into that you can have shifts that are awful. Uh, but at the end of the day with the med red shift they may be long they're occasionally grueling but you can go home and switch off afterwards um, I'm going to put it out there so I actually really enjoyed my job um, and that includes the, the general medical on call as the, as the registrar and I think there's a perception um, from uh, some of our, our colleagues maybe the junior colleagues that we all go around sort of really grumpy and stressed um, and that's something. <laughs> that's something that maybe we need to be mindful of, and and try and uh, change the uh, image that that we're projecting. Unless, of course, you really do hate your job. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm pretty sure that most people doing it don't really hate it. Otherwise, they they wouldn't be doing it. Um, I have a great work life balance. I've really got no issues with it. And occasionally, yeah, you have a shift that really takes it out of you. But um, but it's enjoyable work. Yeah, I'd agree. So, um, so uh, I'm a consultant now, but I do acute medicine as well, and uh, I I love acute medicine. Actually, I always have done. Find it um, exciting, it's challenging, and very rewarding. So you have people that are really sick, and you watch them get better uh, with the right treatment. So, and my memories of night shift is um, um, being finding them exhausting because it was very busy and um, and at times very stressful but going home at the end feeling like feeling great about it feeling like I'd made a difference um, overnight and being on a high so yeah 
I, I mean, I'll say as as well that people go on about the night shifts and are worried about Medwedge nights. I actually enjoy the night shifts perversely more than the day shifts, mm-hmm. mainly because mm-hmm. consultant presence in a lot of admissions unit, no offence, Kelly, is, <laughs> um, is, is so intensive. There are consultants around all the time mm-hmm. that, you know, that sometimes in some places the medical registrar role is more or less just a more glorified SHO role. You know, you're doing those same mm-hmm. parkings, except that you take phone calls from other departments and the A&E department. But at night, when there's no consultant around, you you run the take and you organise things and you have an overview of everything that's going on. And that, to me, is what training to be a consultant is yeah. about. And that's what being the registrar should be about. So the the night shifts can actually be better than the day shifts in that respect. No, absolutely. I agree. And actually, a few registers have said that recently. So I think, yeah, we, we do need to focus on the positives of being the medical reg. And yeah, I agree. I think the consultant presence during the day on um, admissions uh, does limit the registrar role. And uh, so I think, yeah, night shifts are a really good opportunity uh, to take charge and uh, enjoy, enjoy the role. If I think... Sorry, I was just going to say, I guess the question was sort of work-life balance. And I guess yeah. part of the problem we have is that people check out of F2 and look at maybe people who are training in GP land who perhaps will have, was it three years of training they do? Mm. And, and they think a proportion of that won't be involved night and they think the sort of finish line is so much closer than the idea of effectively seven years, you know, two of core medical training, five of higher training. And I think that's the lure. And you can't really get away from that. It's seven years of nights and yes, you can you can say it's an enjoyable experience and, and yeah, you know, I enjoy my job too, but I think for a lot of people that seven years and basically the rest of your twenties is gone and without wanting to put too much of a damper on it. I, you know, I do think that's a factor for some people I and mean, no matter how how hard you try, some people won't want to entertain that. My my sort of retort to that would be that rotors are so much better nowadays. You get days off post nights. Amazing. You get to go to the bank and all sorts. <laughs> That's a fabulous thing. You, even get, you get days off before weekends and it, it, they're a lot nicer rotors to work than maybe they would have been five or six years ago. Um, I also, from personal experience, sort of halfway through my training, took some time out to spend some time teaching and doing research and during that did no general medical on call. I think having a bit of time off made me realise that I actually quite like it. But I sort of came back when my batteries recharged. So bear in mind that once you're sort of locking yourself into seven years, there are opportunities to step off the, the conveyor belt and do other stuff. And it's not a never ending slog. Was that too negative? That was good. No, okay, right. <laughs> Can I just say as well then that so I spent eight years as a reg because um I did part of uh, I did some of it as part time training and I had three children in that time. So I think I managed to fit in my life. <laughs> In my tra- with training as well, and yeah, it's possible. Your work life balance has gone too far the other way, hasn't it? That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Three kids, yeah, uh, brilliant. So, one of the things that you started to mention during that was um, working with consultants, and I one of the fears that's been expressed to me was um, that relationship with the consultant and, and what happens if it goes badly, what happens if you're getting criticized from your boss, and I wondered. It, how you guys had thought of had found the best way to work with directly with a consultant was can I just, can I just ask before we start answering that question how are you feeling because you, you were saying that you had some of these fears are we actually winning here or? you are winning yes actually you're doing alright 
I've t- at the moment, I have to say, I'm keeping score and I've ticked every single one. I think we've covered five already and I've ticked every single one as feeling a little bit better. Okay, how much better like, on a scale of one to ten? Well, I would, I would say um, I'm seven to eight out of ten at the moment. Right. You're not going to resign your number, basically. No, no, no. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> we achieved something, yeah. <laughs> no, you're doing, you're doing well so far. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, the question was about Sorry. Uh, Sorry. was how would you how would you guys deal if uh, the consultant you're working with is is someone you find quite difficult to work with or someone you're worried that there's a re- reputation for giving out a lot of criticism? Um, have you approached your relationship with the consultants you've been on call with? I have to say that's quite a rare problem in my experience. Maybe I'm lucky. I don't know. But uh, usually, if there are consultants that you work with, as with any colleagues who are particularly critical and negative, it won't just be the registrar that gets um, to experience that, it will be the whole team. So uh, it's not anything that I've really come across where as the registrar you feel particularly picked on. I have to say, like, I think quite often, I mean, maybe this is just the, the consultants I happen to have worked with on, in an on-call setting, quite often they're quite pleased to see a geriatrician rock up to do, an, to do a redshift because if you get a single organ specialist, they're very, you know, they're, they're very focused on that. But, the breadth of stuff that we deal with and so many of the punters are, are elderly. I think a few people have said, oh, you know, it's nice having a geriatrician on. So that's a positive. I, I wear my uh, geriatrician. I have geriatrician. That's fine. I think that um, any criticism has to be constructive as well, really. If you, so I think that if you're having issues with a consultant and they are being critical of you, then it's time to actually approach them and say, can we have a meeting? Perhaps we can do a case-based discussion about that person who's um, who I managed that you were unhappy with my management and, yeah, actually have a discussion about it. Um, and if it's a continual thing with one person, then actually I think that's labelled bullying now. Yeah. So um, I think there, there are issues there. Yeah. So it shouldn't be a problem. That's the theoretical answer, isn't it, about what you should do? I'd probably just ignore it. Um, well, I mean, you know, it's a problem if you're yeah. getting that negative feedback from everybody that you're working with, but it's yes. just one individual, and it's and it doesn't appear to be just you or personality issue. Then, yeah. I don't know. But I think if there is a real criticism about a case that you've managed, then you need to understand it, and there's a learning point. So, you know, maybe you have got something slightly wrong on one occasion, but that that should be fed back to you, and you should it should be an educational process to learn what you did wrong and and how to do things better next time. Um, it shouldn't be a constant criticism, should it? If you're, I think that's certainly work. one area that, as a specialty, we we definitely need to do better because I think this is where a lot of the disenchantment comes. In terms of training, you get as a medreg on call because of the way we work now. And instead of in the morning staying on the post-it ward on for three hours and getting one-to-one feedback from a consultant, you don't really get that anymore because of the European Working Time Directive. We all have to go off home to bed. So I think we need to be imaginative and work out how we can better give. How consultants can better give us trainees feedback on our performance because, because sure there is you know ad hoc case discussions that are useful but that know one thing that I always think about is you know the continuity of patients you always thinking you know, oh I wonder what happened to that chap and you sort of have a rummage around and you go oh I've lost his hospital number I guess I'll never know and I was reading the other day about one hospital that had set it up such that it recorded which patient you'd seen and it emailed you a copy of the discharge summary and I thought isn't that really neat just a really simple way of actually getting some closure on the case that you're involved with and. And I think when we certainly compare it to specialities like, you know, surgical specialties, a lot of one-to-one training, 
anaesthetics, all one-to-one training. And I think we maybe need to be more imaginative as a specialty with regards to how we train people. Would this be a good point to bring up, bring up the uh, Royal College uh, work that's been done on the, the medical registrar? Because it's been something that's been brewing for a while that the role of the med reg in some places is suboptimal. And I think that's recognised by the college. And I think the fact that that role is putting people off applying to medical specialties is also recognised. And so there is a lot of work that's been done about what can be done to improve the role and protect the core of the medical registrar job and improve the training. And that will take time to filter down to hospitals. But I mean, it'll happen. It's already happening. We're seeing evidence of it. Um, And James has just given a nice example of that. So there are moves afoot to to make uh, the job even more... Um, rewarding, useful for training. Yeah, the, it's called the Acute Care Toolkit, the MedReg on call. Um, and I guess we can maybe put a link to it on the. Yeah, we'll the put a link in the show notes. Um, it's sort of three or four pages long. Some nice ideas on it, but you sort of read it and think uh, it hasn't maybe quite dribbled down everywhere. But there is some really sensible stuff in there. So there's the idea of, of one of the physicians in your hospital should be the MedReg champion. Not the best med reg, but, but the person who's <laughs> champion is the, the uh, requirements of... Are you a med reg champion? No, no, I think I should be, though. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. No, my favourite one was the president of the Royal College, uh, this was a couple of years ago, in his uh, bulletin, sent an email around to all the, the members encouraging chief executives of every hospital trust to demonstrate their appreciation for the medical registrar by having an annual dinner for all the oh. med registrar. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, I'm still waiting for my invite for that, <laughs> for that dinner, but I, 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 like the, I like the suggestion. That would be the one that I'd champion. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff in action. There's one quote that I, really, I think we've sort of touched on this already, but it really epitomises, I think, like the negativity around the med reg. And it says, probably the first thing to go when you're busy is teaching and training others. And you all know how busy MAU is. And I think that's why often the training experience as a reg maybe isn't as good as it perhaps could be. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some really good stuff in it. Um, and it does all, it, it's not all negative as well. It does focus on the positives. And I'm just conscious, obviously, we're, we're touching on a lot, a lot of negatives, but there are definite positives to being a med reg. And we have mentioned some. Yeah. So I'd say as well that um, when you're on a day shift on the admission suite, then actually you should use the opportunity to try and do a supervised like post-take ward round as well. Yeah. So I think that's a really good learning opportunity. Yeah. And I know certainly in Newcastle there's lots of opportunity for that now because there's sort of about three consultants that are doing post-take round in the morning. Mm-hmm. And the idea of that setup was so you know the regs could do um, a ward round with us, a supervised ward round, and, and have it as an educational experience. So take that opportunity. Yeah, that's certainly yeah. the best teaching I've had in, in that kind of format when I've been on call. And similarly, at a more junior level, I would say to people that if they are contemplating a uh, career in a medical specialty but aren't maybe sure about the medical registrar, or the way to experience it and see what it's like is to try and tag along and, and do things in tandem with the medical registrar, you know, find um, a friendly one who you you get on with and you'd have to obviously pick a shift where you could maybe be spared from the clerking on the admissions ward. But I, I've taken SHOs to A&E with me and done yeah. joint assessments of patients just to show them what goes on outside the area of the assessment suite as the medical registrar so they can see what sort of yeah. things the job involves. There's a lot of mystique. I think they're on the med reg. You think, oh, the med reg has been bleeped again. Where are they going? They're probably going to do some open heart surgery and sort of save a life. But actually, all we're doing is walking 20 yards to resource and doing A, B, C, D, E, just like you are. We've just done it a few more times. And I think maybe taking people with us and showing them that we're not doing weird and wonderful magic, 
I think that actually might open people's eyes to the fact it's maybe not quite as daunting as you think it is. A bit of mystique's all right there. A bit of mystique. Yeah. <laughs> so you can walk back in and high five people. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I mean, one of the things that was suggested on Twitter, we've had a lot of good advice come through, was that um, Dan Firmage was suggesting that actually letting CT2s act up when they're coming towards their, them being medical registrars was a good idea. I don't know if, if any of you ever had the opportunity to, to try letting a, a junior act up like that. I do like the expression acting up. Yeah. It sounds like you're really naughty. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I quite like it when you come on shift and there's maybe a CT2 on. You always like that because, you know, they've obviously got that wee bit more experience. But in my, in my last job, I've, a couple of shifts, I've actually given them the med reg bleep just for a couple of hours. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, heavily supervised, watching very carefully. And clearly that's built up because I've worked with them for a year and sort of no one trusts them. But I think they found that quite useful. Um, yeah. Before I got my number, after I'd got paces, they were short on the registrar rotor at the hospital I was working in. Mm. And so they asked me to, to act up a couple of times on the day shift. I, I, that was a good opportunity. I, yeah. I enjoyed that. And because it was a place that I was working in at the time and was familiar with and knew the people, everybody was really supportive. And it was a, a, a chance to sort of test it out in a very um, sort of supported and controlled way. <laughs> I guess part of the problem is that by the time you've got to CT2 and you've got paces, you've put the hard graft in. Yeah. It's when it's doing MRCP is not fun. It takes a wee while. And by that point, to then say, you know what, medicine's not for me, that, that's that's quite a big big move. And I just wonder whether maybe it's maybe earlier on we need to look at. So what you know, what, what the F2s out there think about the med reg? And I wonder if there's a way to maybe get them exposure to what mm-hmm. we're doing, you know, eking out the ones that have a particular interest in medicine, but are perhaps thinking, I'm not so sure. Because I think that's the point. That's the sort of fork in the road where a lot of them disappear off to, to other specialties. Yeah, well, I do like the. I mean, what you were saying about demystifying things and, and taking juniors down to A and E to see you work and stuff like that is that's exactly the sort of thing that, that can target, can't it? And it's the eternal problem, as, as we all know, is the eternal battle between service and training. As you said, you know, I often think medical missions is such a phenomenal environment for teaching. There's so much pathology there. You know, the patients are often invariably willing to help, but it's just time. It's just time that prevents you from, from, from using it. And you almost wonder if there's a way to, to make people supernumerary and to give them that experience, but, but it's difficult. I'm not sure we're going to solve that in the next 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that got brought up on Twitter by um, Nick Merch was one of the bits of advice he gave was to, um, to try and buddy up with other registrars to create a bit of a peer support network for yourselves. And that got me thinking about one thing that people might worry about is, is is it a bit of a lonely job being the medical registrar when you've got a team of junior doctors who may be looking to you, but where do you get your support during those shifts? Who do you confide in? Um, have you guys found found that? Has that been a problem for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is my therapy, this. I think I think you're never on your own. You've got your, you know, they may be your juniors, but they're still like um, they're still there to support you, and they're people that you can talk to, as are the nursing staff, and um, you know everybody around. And I think that um, although as a medical reg, you know you are the senior for the SHOs and the F1s, it's all about team working. And you know there are um, as a consultant now, I will say to my juniors that. I work as a team and if I do something that you don't agree with uh, or you don't understand, I would rather you ask me and got me to explain it or say to me, do you honestly think that's the best thing to do? Because I don't I don't want to be making a mistake that you thought was a mistake and didn't identify to me. So, 
you know, you, I don't think you, well, I, I've never got to a level where I haven't respected the opinion or, um, um, being able to speak to the other doctors and nurses around me. So I think it's about having a mutual respect for everybody you work with and, and, uh, being able to confide in, in those that are around you at any time. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd agree with that hundred percent. Uh, I remember doing a, an on-call shift once uh, as the MedReg where we'd had a, a young patient who'd um, come in, had a cardiac arrest and I'd led the arrest uh, team and the patient had died and then the family had come in and I'd had to speak to the, the family uh, and they were understandably distraught and that was horrible and it takes it out of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was overnight and so you didn't, there were no other registrars around but actually the SHO and the sister on the ward were absolutely lovely and we all kind of comforted each other and had a cup of tea and took mm. a few minutes out before getting back into it and it's I mean those are those are the peers who you get support from yeah I think um from Twitter grumpy geriatrician summed it up nicely when she said protect your team be humble take responsibility for yourself and others and you don't have to know everything I didn't know there was such a thing as a grumpy geriatrician no <laughs> just a, just an adjective isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, great well, I have to say, I do actually genuinely feel better from having listened to uh, to all of this that's been, uh, been brought up today. I'm really sorry to interrupt the flow. I just one question I wanted to ask, because I guess this, this is the thing that causes a lot of stress, sort of when to ring the consultant. And maybe given that we've got a consultant here, it might be probably the best place to answer this. But I just, I don't know about you guys, but it's almost as if like a badge of honour. Like, can I get through the night without ringing the consultant? Because I don't want to admit that, you know, I need their help. And having some people do sort of practice like that. Um, and I think my fresh offering the consultant is probably become, becoming less and less the more experience I get, which I think is quite strange, really. But I'd just be interested to hear what, what you think about it, Kelly. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I don't think you should hesitate. I think if there's, um, if there's a question you can't answer or there's somebody you're worried about and you don't entirely understand what's going on, um, then you should, you should be speaking to your consultant. I think um, one thing... Um, I've now realised as a consultant is that, you know, as the named person responsible for that patient, that um, whatever a reg is doing overnight in terms of their care, you are still responsible for. So I think that actually I want to know and I want to be able to help and support you yeah. um, if you're struggling with something. And um, I, I'd be more annoyed if I went into work the following morning and found that you'd been struggling with a patient all night and perhaps hadn't quite come up with the correct management plan because of that and had been too afraid to call me for whatever reason or hesitated. Yeah, I, I found that as well. And it's, to be honest, um, it's never been a, a problem. I don't think I've once had an issue where somebody has complained that I've called them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably the culture that you'll find in most places now. Yeah. And not just if you don't know what to do, but I've called people just to inform them if a potentially delicate yeah. situation is, is developing and just to let them know what's going on. Um, and it's uh, it's a useful resource to have. And the response yeah. I've always had back, as Kelly says, is that people are appreciative that they're being kept informed. Yeah, I've never had a flea sort of put in my ear by, a, by an upset consultant for waking them up. And uh, I think uh, there's this perception that there's a glass ceiling or the reg and you just have to keep the good ship hospital going. But... I think we've hopefully kind of dispelled that and as Kelly said I'm sure consultants would much rather be rang than, than not and I think we, we've touched on this before but when you get that feeling of uh, something's not quite right don't ignore it don't try and sort of push it to the back of your mind if you're hearing that it probably because something is not right and act on it 
So I'm sorry, you were saying. So thank you very, very much. I do actually feel feel better from having listened to uh, to everything you said today. Um, almost looking forward to my uh, first shift on call now. Um, so I thought we could we could close up with um, coming up with three commandments um, for this Cody Cast. Sort of three bits of advice about how to overcome your fears about being a med reg, what you should do um, to make the most of your time as a medical registrar, um, and. Just from listening to you guys, I mean, the one that I, I think I found most reassuring is the fact that you do have a good team around you while you're in the hospital, that you have um, not only the support of your junior doctors, but of your consultants, we've just talked about as of other doctors in the hospital. And, and like, like you said, James, you're not fighting this battle on your own. Um, and in fact, you've, you've got a great team around you um, to help that help with that. And it's, it's not a lonely experience. I don't know what, what do you guys think has been other sort of major points that have emerged from all of this? Was, it, was that a commandment? Because it was that, quite wordy. That commandment was... It's a team game. It's a team it's game. A... Thank you, James <laughs> Fisher. <laughs> Fine. So use your team. Is that the first yes, yeah. commandment? Um, probably be, be prepared, just like the scouts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as we've said... Um, do what you do what you can to get yourself ready for the role whether it's doing skills courses to refresh yourself or develop um, your skills in areas that you're worried about or um, shadow the med reg or go off to any with them just to find out what it's about um, and that applies either if you're in a CMT role about to embark on becoming a medical registrar or even if you're at a more junior level uh, and want to know sort of what it's all about which will help inform your career decision um, so yeah. I guess that can maybe be phrased sort of face your fear. Like it's okay to acknowledge that there's fears, but let's do something about it as opposed to just hoping everything will be all right on the night. The only thing to fear is fear itself. <laughs> <laughs> my hair yeah. is in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's two. Um, so I don't know if mine would sort of um, link to sort of the team working really more and that would be sort of be nice to others and uh, they'll be nice to you I think that's a like for me I think that's always been really important throughout work because I think if, if you're a nice person then everybody wants to help you and wants to make sure you're okay and your work will be so much easier yeah. but if you take on um, uh, more if you're more more of a standoff standoffish type role then people won't be as supportive. Great. So we've got work with your team, face your fears, and be nice to everybody. <laughs> yeah. That's just good life advice, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> Not just with the med reg. I think that's a particular reverence. I, I guess a lot of the, the stressful stuff maybe comes when the med reg goes down to A&E. And often when you call by them, you're in the middle of something, you're stressed, you're, you're maybe feeling harassed, and that's a potential source of conflict. But personally speaking, the place where I've been working, I got on really well with the guys in A&E, and actually quite enjoy going down there you feel part of the team and I think especially as you're saying Kelly if you're nice to people it just sort of oils and greases the cogs and everything flows a lot better yeah, and so, I just and just to emphasise again to people at a junior level that it's you know it, it can be an enjoyable job and it is for lots of us and um, we're obviously biased because it's something that we all do or have done but uh, it shouldn't necessarily put you off a career that uh, in medicine that you would otherwise want to want to choose, yeah. and particularly geriatrics. Yeah, I mean the highs the highs are really high, and as Kelly sort of alluded to, sometimes you walk out after nights and you think, "Yeah, I did a good job there. It was busy, but I managed it and I did all right." But then on the flip side, you know, we don't want to sugarcoat it. The lows can be low, but there's plenty of positives. 
So you're just going to sort of play this to yourself on loop for your first night shift? <laughs> <laughs> maybe after my first terrible night shift, I'll play it back again. Or maybe in the car. Yeah. Maybe in the car on the way to the first shift. Yeah, yeah, definitely in the car on the way to the first shift. <laughs> Pete, just call me. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> okay, good. Well, thank you very much for listening and thank you very much to the panel today. You can find the show notes for this Coty cast at uh, amy, which is A-E-M-E dot org dot U-K slash CotyCast3. And if you have any comments, questions or feedback, uh, please do not hesitate to get, to get in touch. You can email us at CotyCast at amy dot org dot U-K or contact us via Twitter at, uh, at elderlymedEd. Thank you very much. <laughs>